It is a pleasure to be with you once again to bring you God's Word this morning. Last time I was here, I preached from the Old Testament in what some have called an obscure text. This morning we'll be in the New Testament, and perhaps this text will not be as obscure as the one that I previously preached. This morning our sermon text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and I've titled this sermon, Marks of a Godly Ministry. Marks of a Godly Ministry. Let us now give ear and pay attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. Paul writes to the church, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy And righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would open our eyes, that you would give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and the minds to comprehend and understand with all the saints what is the breadth, the depth, the height, the width, of the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus, that you may be magnified and that we may be made happy in the Lord God. Oh, Lord, teach us. Test us and try us through your word this morning in the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. In the name of our strong and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As your church searches for a minister to help lead you through this present time, the Bible presents us with plenty of examples of what to do as well as what not to do in shepherding God's people. In a time when trust in leadership is at an all-time low, I want to help you as you pray and seek for the man through whom God will take care of you as his children. But don't mistake this as being only a sermon for the search committee 
are only for the elders. Because the marks of a godly ministry that Paul lays out for us here in 1 Thessalonians are not to just mark the minister, but they're also to mark the ministry of the church of which every member has a role and plays a part. And so this is not only to be the marks of a godly minister, but the marks of a godly ministry in the church. So this morning, Paul in our passage gives us three marks or characteristics of a godly ministry. And these are the right message, the right motive, and the right method. The right message, the right motive, and the right method. The first area of godly ministry that we need to see is the message. What did Paul preach when he came to Thessalonica? And what are we today to preach to the church, to the children in our families, to ourselves, as well as to this fallen world? What are we preaching? And in this section, I don't know if you noticed it, but Paul mentions four times the gospel of God. Look at verse 2. We had boldness in our God to declare to you what? The gospel of God. Verse 4, we were entrusted with the gospel. Verse 8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. And verse 9, at the end of verse 9, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. We see that Paul's message in the mark of a godly ministry is in preaching the gospel. But that begs the question, what is the gospel? Probably heard that the word gospel itself simply means good news. What is that good news? The gospel is the good news of what God has done by his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem sinners because of his grace mercy, and love. I'll say that again. The gospel is the good news of what God has done by His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem sinners because of His grace, His mercy, and His love. The gospel includes everything that a man must know in order to be saved, as well as how to live as a saved person and the hope that we have as redeemed children of God. Paul was zealous in proclaiming salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by faith alone that we are saved. Paul had no thought for proclaiming a a man-centered or man-focused gospel or a gospel that would allow man to have any part in his salvation. Man-centered messages are not the gospel at all because it's not good news. All throughout Paul's writings, not just here in 1 Thessalonians, he's dogmatic in warning the church about mixing works with faith or trying to be saved by works alone. Think of the book of Galatians where the church was in danger of of trying to add to faith certain requirements from the Old Testament, circumcision, following the, the dietary laws of Moses. And Paul says, no, you have fallen from grace if you're seeking to go back to works 
For we are not justified by the works of the law. We are justified by faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Paul upholds God's gospel, the gospel that originates with God and is God's message of salvation. Leon Morris, a New Testament commentator and pastor, writes, quote, It is easy to distort the message or to substitute something else for it. But what gives Christianity its power is the fact that the gospel is of God. It is God's good news that he has revealed to you and to me. This is the way of salvation, that we are sinners dead in our sins, born in our sins. Every part of us has been affected by sin because of the fall. And the only hope that we have of being rescued from our sins is Jesus Christ and his perfect life where he never sinned and kept God's law perfectly on our behalf which is what enabled him to be the spotless lamb of God and offer himself up as a sacrifice on the cross to pay the debts for our sin. That is good news. It is not good news to tell dead people that they can do something for their salvation because dead people cannot do a single thing. And we are all spiritually dead when we enter into this world. Christ gives life. He gives the new birth of the Holy Spirit for all who put their faith and trust in Him and in Him alone, turning from ourselves, turning from any thought that we can achieve our own salvation. True gospel preaching that is faithful to God's Word, the entire, the entire counsel of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that upholds Christ as the only way of salvation is the first mark of a godly ministry. You cannot have a godly ministry without the gospel. Otherwise, this is just a club, a social gathering of people. But godly ministry is not just about the message. It also involves motives. Godly ministry involves the right message, but it also involves the right motives. Now, to be sure, God is able to work through whenever his message is proclaimed, even when our motives are wrong. You remember the disciples said, hey, there's, there's people preaching who are not of us, and, and Jesus said, leave them alone. They're preaching the gospel. And then there was others who, who were preaching Christ for gain. They were greedy. They preached Christ for, for money. Their motives were wrong, but Jesus says, hey, they're preaching the gospel. And God will work through that. But that doesn't excuse having a wrong motive. Because the wrong motive is ungodly. It's sinful. And so as we seek to, to have a, a godly ministry, as we seek to, as you search for a godly minister and seek to be a godly church, it also involves the right motive. And Paul first tells us, what his motives were not. And then he tells us what his motives were. The first motive I want us to see that should not characterize a minister in ministry is laid out in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. This word deceive means to trick or to, to trap by using bait. Paul's using fishing imagery here. You catch something by means of 
of offerings, it's something good looking on the outside, right? To, to the fish, that worm looks delicious or that fly. Or you think about Snow White and that apple looked so delicious, but inside it was full of poison. And inside that worm or inside that fly, there's a hook waiting to catch that fish. In Paul's day, there were many so-called philosophers and magicians and swindlers who used tricks in order to deceive people for personal gain. And is the same not true in our society today? You have Oprah preaching a false gospel of spirituality that's a little more than New Age mysticism. I'm sorry to, to dash your bu- bubble about her. She denies sin. Her, her religion says that man can save himself. That's not the gospel. But she's deceiving people. You have cults such as Mormons and Jehovah's Witness who, who try to say that they're little more than just another Christian denomination, and yet they deny everything we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. That Jesus is not God. That Jesus was not born of a virgin. In fact, the Mormons believe that we become gods after we die. And so they don't even believe in one God. They're not even monotheists. They're polytheists. I heard one professor say that we actually have more in common with Muslims who are monotheists than we do with Mormons who are polytheists, multiple gods. And so they use right-sounding biblical words, but they, they fill those words with ungodly, unbiblical, and heretical meaning. They deceive. But then you have liberal denominations as well who have, who have wholesale denied the gospel and gone apostate. They claim that Jesus is just a good example to follow in order to be a good person, but he's not God. Oh, he teaches us about the way of love, and all you have to do is love others just as they are, and we'll all be fine and we'll all get along. It's like that Coke commercial or John Lennon's Imagine. But Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, But inwardly are ravenous wolves. By their nature, they are deceivers. They look good on the outside, but inside is death. True gospel ministry is done by by true sheep. They are sheep by nature. They look like sheep on the outside, and they are sheep on the inside. And they don't intend or seek to deceive the people of God, but to present the whole truth of the gospel of God. This was characteristic of Paul. It's to be characteristic of every godly and gospel minister as well as every godly church and ministry. We are not to be deceptive or to seek to deceive people. The next motive not to be found in a godly ministry is found in the second half of verse 4 as well as in the first part of verse 6. Paul writes that we have been approved by God, so we speak not to please man. And look at verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people. Paul in his ministry did not seek to tickle the ears of men or to please them. He did not wish to receive praise or glory from them. He says the same thing in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He writes, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? 
Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Do you see what he does there? He says, you can't be a man pleaser and a God pleaser at the same time. They're opposed to each other. They butt heads with one another. We did not come seeking to please man, to tickle their ears. And he describes what man-pleasing looks like in verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Paul did not come seeking to flatter his audience, to tell you that, that you're good enough and you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people will like you. That's not good news. The word flattery means tailoring the truth to fit popular opinion. Telling people what they want to hear based on what they already believe. Doesn't that describe our present situation today? People believe that a man can become a woman, a woman can become a man. They believe that's all sorts of ungodliness. And so our politicians and and a lot, not every, but a lot of educators are, are telling people that lie from the pit of hell. They are tailoring what they call truth, your truth, my truth, to what people already believe, to popular opinion. And as popular opinion changes, guess what? So does the message. You know, when President Obama first took office, he was opposed to so-called gay marriage. But then as popular opinion shifted on that, guess what? He shifted on that so that he could tell people what they wanted to hear. Why? So that he could retain his position of power and authority. He tailored the so-called truth to fit popular opinion. Listen to what 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 and 4 say. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They'll depart from the truth for a truth that they want to believe rather than the truth that God reveals in his word. Joel Osteen went on Larry King Live June 20th, 2005 And when asked if Muslims, Jews, and people of non-Christian faith would go to heaven, here's what Osteen said, quote, Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. You can sincerely believe something that is false. He waffled. He he departed from what the Word of God plainly teaches, that there is no salvation outside of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. People today do not want to hear about sin, God's wrath, or hell, or that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That a man is a man and a woman is a woman as God created them. 
So a large part of the church is accommodating to the world and now allowing things such as so-called gay priests and having so-called pastors who are wanting to perform homosexual marriage. The United Methodist Church now even has a quote-unquote drag queen pastor within their denomination. They've denied the truth to fit popular opinion, which means that the truth is not going to be very popular. It's going to be unpopular. And yet, that's exactly what Paul says, I came to preach. It's to give you what you need, not what you want. I would rather please God than to please man. Pleasing man is temporary. You, you can get away with it in this life for the you know 60 or 70 years that, that God grants to us on this earth, but... One day we will all stand before God on his judgment seat and we will be accountable to an eternal God for the words that we have said to others. And that's much more weighty than trying to please man for a few years. Godly ministry doesn't seek to please man or receive glory from man. Rather, it seeks to please God and give God all the glory. One commentator puts it this way, quote, A person obligated to speak for one who can judge the heart would be foolish to change the message in order to please the hearers. Such an act would comprise a breach of trust. Thus, it was impossible in the mind of the apostle to be a person pleaser and a God pleaser at the same time. End quote. Pleasing man comes with words of flattery. It also comes with a pretext for greed, as verse 5 says. Matthew Henry comments that Paul's design was not to enrich himself by preaching the gospel. Contrast that with what Peter says of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The word, the word used for greed here can also be translated elsewhere as idolatry. The idea is that there's, there's some lust for possessions which dominates all else. Some people enter the ministry because they are enticed by money. I don't know what they're thinking. They're enticed by fame, celebrity. They're enticed by being in a position of authority. Or they crave positions of leadership. Their whole purpose for being in ministry is about themselves. But Paul's whole purpose for being in ministry was to exalt Christ and to preach the good news so that Christ and his people would be enriched, not himself. He talks about, we worked night and day, verse 9, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul was a tent maker and Time after time again, he had every right to assert his authority as an apostle, to demand something from the church. After all, a a minister is worthy of his wages. And yet Paul says, I was not like that. We were not like that with you. Whether others or himself, Paul's ministry was not man-centered. Paul simply wanted to render service that would be well-pleasing unto God, not unto man. And so we see some motives that should not be found in true godly ministry. Deceit, man-pleasing, self-pleasing. But Paul also tells us some right motives. These are 
positive motives that characterized his ministry to the Thessalonians and by implication are to characterize true godly ministry. The flip side of not seeking to please man is seeking to please God, as he says in verse 4. What does it mean to please God? Romans 8.8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Only those who are in the Spirit. So for one to please God, first you have to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have to be a regenerate person, converted to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And then out of that proceeds a life that is pleasing to God, obeying His commandments, seeking to honor Him with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Pleasing God takes into account our actions and our thoughts and our motives. It's, it's bearing fruit. Once we have been planted in the soil of Jesus Christ by faith, his, he gives us the life nourishment and the vitality that we need through the Holy Spirit so that we bear good fruit. A good tree will bear good fruit. God was Paul's master just as he is our master here today for those who believe. And we seek to please him in everything that we think, everything that we do, everything that we say. Just as that is true for us as individual Christians, so it is to be true for one who ministers, especially true for one who ministers to Christ's sheep. The next positive motive of godly ministry can be found in verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. Three words to describe Paul's lifestyle amongst the Thessalonians. In Paul's mind, there's a connection between how one lives and how one ministers. There's no room for hypocrisy if one is to have a godly ministry. He says that we were holy, set apart to pleasing to God. Our our conduct was holy toward you in conformity with the law of God. Our conduct among you was righteous, seeking, seeking to be without excuse, seeking to be blameless. You know, we didn't come just living a lavish lifestyle. We didn't come uh, just sinning willy-nilly amongst you. No, our, our life as we ministered among you was holy and blameless and righteous. Paul's reputation before people was of such character and integrity that he could not be charged with wrongdoing or falsehood. He had character. He had integrity rooted in the word and the law of God. All of these work together to show the kind of conduct Paul had as a minister to the church of Christ. His actions matched his words. The desire to back up your message with your life is a mark of true godly ministry. One who does not desire to seek a holy, righteous, and blameless life before God and men has no part in the godly ministry. Hypocrites have no part in the godly ministry. But godly ministry involves more than just the right message and the right motive. We come to our third mark today. It involves the right method can be broken down into two categories, attitudes and actions. 
Look at how Paul describes his conduct and his preaching in all of his life. First in verse 2, we had boldness in our God. Paul put no confidence in his flesh or his abilities as a, as a public speaker. That wasn't where his confidence lay. His confidence lay in God who had given him this message to speak. That's where his boldness was. And so he was not timid. He was confident. He did not go around saying, God loves you. Sort of a shy manner. No, he was bold to proclaim the gospel wherever he went, not just in Thessalonica. He wasn't scared of people. He had confidence in God and the message that God had given him to speak. That's where his confidence lay. I know that this is the message that God has ordained to change people and to bring spiritually dead people to new life. I am confident in that, and so on that I will make my stand. It was God's working through him, not his own work. Next we see humility. Verse 6, we did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He did not long for prestige or honor. And I have to tell you, this is a very real temptation for people who are in positions of leadership in the public eye, which is what a minister is. This is a very real temptation to become proud week after week. Oh, that was such a good sermon, Pastor. You mean it as a compliment. It is well-intentioned. But Satan takes even good things and can twist them and use them for his devilish purposes. And so the pastor, week after week, hears that and, and pride begins to seep into his mind and to his heart. He begins to, to lose humility. Or a pastor suddenly finds himself with a, a growing flock and a growing congregation and it's Hard not to say, look what I've done. Everybody's flocking to this church because I'm a wonderful preacher or I have a magnetic personality or whatever it may be. It's a very real temptation for ministers. We speak in public gatherings anywhere from one to three times a week depending on how many services a church has. And, and they have ministers have authority and leadership by virtue of the office to which they've been called. And so there's this temptation for applause and once you have it, you want more of it. The craving grows. It's like a drug. You get a little taste of it, and then you want more, and you want more, and you want more. It's a temptation that wants the church to grow, not because souls are being saved, but because the minister wants more people applauding him. Paul, as an apostle, had authority invested in him by Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about it. You know, he talks about a man who was carried up into the third heaven. And most commentators believe that Paul's referring to himself in a, in a third person. Kind of like Bob Doyle used to do. Paul had all these great revelations. But then Paul also says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to keep me humble so that I wouldn't be confident in myself, but I would be confident in God. 
Paul was not puffed up as an apostle. He did not come in barking commands and throwing his weight around, though he says, I could have. I could have done this. I could have taken what we rightfully had a right to demand from you. But no, we wanted to be a benefit and a blessing to you. So we came with humble hearts and humble attitudes. We also came with gentleness. Look at verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He was not harsh or abrasive. He had great warmth and affection towards his spiritual children. He says, if I speak truth but I have not love, what? I am a clanging symbol. It's like Paul is saying, I took you into my arms and I lovingly fed you the pure food of the gospel of God, gospel of God much like a mother takes a child and nurses that child or feeds that child, even though the child may spit it out as he's learning to eat. And this warmth towards his flock continues in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you. This word affectionately desirous has been found on, on ancient tombs of, 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 of dead children. Parents wrote this word on the tomb of their of their dead child, and it described their deep longing for their child, whom they could no longer hold. Paul uses this word, and he says, this is how I am. This is how I was towards you. I longed for you in the love of God. I loved you so much and with such a deep love that, that I hated being apart from you, much like a, a mother who hates to be parted from her children, even for a short time. All Paul wanted to do was to be with them and to serve them and to love them and to minister God's encouragement and comfort and, if necessary, rebuke to the people of God. The last attitude is one of sacrifice, verses 8 and 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We held nothing back. We gave the gospel ministry our all on your behalf. We worked and served sacrificially on behalf of Christ's sheep and for Christ's sheep. It's almost like Paul is saying, I cared more about you even than my own life. I'm willing to burn out for your sake. Not that burning out is good. But he was willing to give of himself his whole self, for the behalf of others. Is that not what Christ did? Paul is simply saying that a minister here imitates Christ. So all of these words add up to a well-rounded description of true godly ministry. It will carry with it godly attitudes. It will be marked by an attitude of humility, boldness and truth, gentleness, love and sacrifice, it requires wisdom of a minister to know when to apply the Word of God as a healing balm to those who are, who are downtrodden and oppressed and who need encouragement and lifting up and being reminded of the great promises that we have in Christ Jesus. But it also takes wisdom to know when you need to speak a word of rebuke to a brother or sister who is going astray and needs to be called back to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ.
the second part of right methods. Those were attitudes, now actions. Three things. First, Paul says he exhorted the flock. Look at verses 3 and 12. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Our appeal. And then down in verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. This is persuasive speech that calls one to join the messenger's side. We appealed, we exhorted, implore you. Paul didn't just recite facts or give comments on verses. He had a message, and it's a message that demands a response from people. Will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, or will you continue to go your own way? What is your response to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ? Paul uses another metaphor. Not only were they like a mother taking care of children. Verse 11, you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you. Now he uses the father metaphor. Paul was providing guidance and encouragement. It's a gospel that calls and demands a response. And for those who respond to it positively by faith, it provides encouragement and guidance. So all of these things work together to make a full godly ministry. You can't encourage somebody. You can't provide guidance to somebody with a false message. You certainly are not going to want to encourage somebody if you're trying to be greedy or deceitful, right? If you're only in it for yourself. So Paul exhorted them. He encouraged them. He consoled his flock. He preached a message that provided tender and and restorative care in the face of the obstacles and failures that we all face and experience in our Christian lives. To strengthen the weak, to comfort the sad. It's like a child who comes with a scrape or cut and the the parent takes the time to apply the medicine. And then what do you do? You, You hold your child in your arms, right? You let that child cry. You provide comfort. You provide healing. True godly ministry will not bring discouragement to people, but it will encourage them in the things of God. So he was warning them away from actions and attitudes that would lead them off the straight and narrow path. So true godly ministry and leadership is marked by the right message, right motives, and the right method. And as you seek and search out for a minister... Look at the ministry, if if they are already ordained, look at the ministry of those who submit their information to you. Does this particular candidate's ministry exhibit these characteristics? Does he, as a minister of God's word, seek to live and proclaim with integrity? Does he desire to have his life model or imitate the message he is proclaiming? Does he seek to proclaim nothing but the full counsel of God without any addition or subtraction? Does he have a love for the people for whom he is ministering? Or does he stand detached from them? These three marks of godly ministry help us to discern when wolves have come into our midst. They help us to discern who we should and should not call. But these same questions we should be asking ourselves as individual Christians. Do I have a love 
for the people of God, my brothers and sisters who are in this particular expression of the household of God? Do I seek to be gentle with those who need a gentle hand? The same parent that can tend a wound and and receive a crying and upset child into his or her arms is the same parent that can administer discipline. We are called to warn our brothers and sisters to come back when we see them going astray, when we see them doing or saying things that are, are damaging to their spiritual health. Because if you let it go unchecked, it's going to infect the church and it's going to spread. Paul modeled this godly ministry behavior so that the people of the church would have a good example set for them, not only for what their minister should be like, but also for them to imitate. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The same Christ who consoled people, who comforted people. The same Christ who rebuked the Pharisees. He knew when to be gentle, loving and compassionate. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. I am lowly and humble of heart. You hypocrites, you brood of vipers, repent and flee from the wrath to come. Is the ministry of this church saturated with the right message, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we treat one another in love even when we have to rebuke or warn others? Are you encouraging one another from Scripture as the day of the Lord draws near? Are you humble towards each other, not seeking to be deceitful, not seeking to to get what you can get out of other people's, but what? Looking after other people's interests first and then your own. So seek a minister who is already exhibiting these traits so that you as a congregation may be built up in these same traits as well. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your word and the guidance that you give us, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ through your prophets and apostles who have written it down for our instruction and for our guidance, in which we are only enabled to understand by your Holy Spirit, as these are spiritual things that only a spiritual person can understand. So, Lord, help us. We need your Spirit to apply these things rightly. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would make this message, this application of your Word, stick in our minds and our hearts, not just today, not just in the week to come, but in the months and the years that we may grow into full maturity in Christ-likeness. Only by your working, through Christ our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Let us.